Deuteronomy chapter 20. If you don't know where Deuteronomy is, it's the fifth book in your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. If you're in Psalms, just listen while I read. Deuteronomy 20. Once you have turned there, would you stand up as we give reverence to the reading of God's Word? Deuteronomy 20, verse 10. When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. I like that verse. Verse 12. But if it makes no peace with you, but makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when Yahweh your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. And I don't like that as much. But the women and the little ones, the livestock and everything else in the city, all its spoils, you shall take as a plunder for yourselves and you shall enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which Yahweh your God has given you. All right, not quite as happy, but it's war, okay? Verse 16, but in the cities of these people that Yahweh your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, as Yahweh your God has commanded you, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods, Elohim, and so you sin against Yahweh your God. Now that's Ouch. Wow. Father, I thank you for difficult texts. I pray for divine revelation and guidance and opening of hearts and understanding. I pray that we could understand your plan, your eternal plan, your good plan. So engage our minds, engage our hearts. Engage us, I pray. And may we leave here better understanding your method, methods and your ways and our partnership in that. So give us wisdom, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. We're in the Dirty Dozen series. We're hitting the last two, which are probably the hardest. Uh, next week, Mother's Day, we're doing Suffering. It fits, so get ready for that, moms, although you already have known it. So that's suffering. Today we're doing what I call kill them all. The reason why I say that is because we read verses 16 and 17, God says to these places, kill everything. If it's breathing, kill it, all right? So God now has rescued his people from Egypt. They've gone through the promised land or they've gone through the wilderness wandering, and they're heading into the promised land after 40 years, and God says, when you get in here to these certain cities, there are certain cities that God highlights and says, you can make peace with these cities, no problem, but on these cities, total destruction. Kill everything that breathes. If you have dealt at all with someone that maybe was in the faith and has moved out of the faith, or someone that is an agnostic or atheist, they'll bring this up. How could a good, loving God 
command his people to exterminate entire cities with every living thing in it, kittens and cats and chickens. I mean, really? You'll face this. Now, there are some answers for it, no doubt. There are some explanations that you can give. I'll give you a couple. Um, The first one is this. God had been very patient with this land. So if you go back to Genesis, in Genesis 15, 13, God says to Abraham, I'm giving you a good land, but you can't go there now. Because I'm going to put my people in affliction in Egypt where they're going to suffer. And for 400 years, I'm going to, man, goodness gracious. It did this to me in the last service too. I don't know. There you have it. So it'll wake you up though. Maybe I like it. And we'll put it in as part of the thing. Every once in a while, I'll just do a big pop. So Genesis 15, 13, God says to Abraham, you got to wait 400 years. I'm waiting to see these nations and give them opportunity 400 years to change. That's twice as long as we've existed as a country. It's a long, long time. God was patient with them. Number two, you got to know this. If anyone in these cities repented, God immediately said, welcome to my family. Come on in. Right? The first city they go to is Jericho. There's a woman who was a prostitute. Her name is Rahab. She says, you know what? I believe in God. Immediately, God grabs her, saves her and her entire family. In fact, God is so enamored with this family. He says, your great, 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 great grandson, Rahab, is going to be Jesus Christ. So God immediately responds to repentance. Number three, God is very specific in who this happens to. It's not just a broad, hey, kill them all. It is, there are some things that have to be dealt with in this way. And most of these cities are military. Jericho, we found out now from, mili- from excavation, archaeological excavations, was a military outpost. It's not Grant's Pass, it's Fort Bragg. And so that's what it was. It was, it was a military outpost, and you read Joshua, and there's an alignment of these five kingdoms against Israel. It's war. War is not pretty. So very specific in how it's done. And then fourthly and finally, the civilizations that are named here were rotten. So we have some archaeological evidence about the Canaanites. We have some recordings. And here's what you find out. The Canaanites were corrupt. One of the ways they worshipped one of their deities, I believe they were just demonic, was they said this, if you want to build a house, if you want your house to succeed, when you're building the wall, put a cavity into it, put your firstborn in that, and cap it. And so there's been excavations where they've opened up cavities in these walls of these homes, and there was a little baby in there, and there's claw marks on the wall. It was alive when it was put in there. So just absolutely terrible, brutal. It was corrupt. The, uh, the Phoenicians worshipped a god. The Phoenicians were up in the northern part of Israel. The Phoenicians worshipped a god called Tanit. Tanit, she was a goddess. She required human sacrifice. There's one recording, and it says 10,000 children were sacrificed to this goddess. Now, sometimes antiquities can, can um, exaggerate, but no matter how many kids it was, it's brutal and it's wrong. So God here is saying these places, that's why verse 18 is so important. I don't want this stuff to seep into my people. All right? So there are answers. And a lot of times, here's what we do. We look at these texts in the Old Testament, and we tend to do this. We tend to, like, see, hey, God in the Old Testament was, like, angry. 
But then Jesus comes, cross, Calvary, redemption, atonement, forgiveness, and then God is happy, right? We kind of tend to do that. There's actually entire movements that are based on that idea. Here's the problem with the idea. God does Deuteronomy 20 again, and it's in the New Testament, okay? So where we'll take the majority of our time is in Revelation 16 when God does it again. God again brings down this crazy thing that we say, how does that fit with a good loving God? And we've got to make sense of it. No longer by being able to say, well, that was Old Testament. God did something different. No, he does the same thing in the New Testament in Revelation 16. So flip there and let's try to make sense of this. Verse one, Revelation. Revelation super easy to find. Last book in your Bible, easy. Verse 1, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the wrath, on the earth, the seven bowls of the wrath of God. This is not Israel doing God's business anymore. This is God directly pouring out his wrath on earth. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl onto the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Just like Deuteronomy, everything that breathes dies. Here, God's wrath on the ocean, everything that breathes, everything that's alive, dies. The third angel, verse 4, poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. What you have in Revelation is this. It's the end of things. And there's a moment, Revelation 16, where God does this action. And he's pouring out his wrath, and it's brutal. And what you see is there are three responses to this move of God. And I'm convinced that Christians or non-Christians respond in one of these three ways to God. This is, these are the three ways that we're going to respond. Each of us, when hard things happen, evil happens to us, difficulty happens to us, we're going to respond in one of these three ways. Way number one, verse five. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters. He said, just are you, O holy one, who is... And who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserved. Response number one by the angels is this God, you are good. The very response, first response to this action by God, brutal is the angels look at it and say, God, you're good. Listen to what they say. Just you are. Just means you did what's right. Holy. You're the holy one. Holy means pure of motive. You didn't do it because you're a cranky that day. You have good motives in what you're doing. Who is and who was. You have this eternal plan. You see everything and what you're doing is correct. So the angels, they look at this and they say, God, you're good. The earth dwellers, which is the name of the people on earth at this point, they deserve this. They earned this. God, you're good. 
Let me put myself for a minute in the place of, the, of an angel. When you look at the Bible and it talks about angels, angels have no sin nature. They're not corrupt in that way. So when they respond or they look at things, angels are always black and white. There's no moral relativism. There's no situational ethics. You know, well, maybe in this situation you could lie, but that situation you better not lie. It's none of that. It's not, hey, go for the greatest good. Angels are just black and white. Right? Wrong. Period. So for millennia, here's what angels have done. They've been looking at earth, watching the corruption and the destruction and the evil and the violence that has taken place on earth for millennia, and they've just said, God, why? It's wrong. Why are you so long-suffering? Why are you so merciful? Why are you allowing this to go on? And so finally, in Revelation 16, where God says, time is up. No more. I'm going to act. All these angels say, good. It's about time. Good move. I can agree with the angels. When I look out and I read and I study and I think and I see the evil that has happened and been propagated by certain systems, I say, God, you need to act. If God did not get angry at communism and how it crushes people, I would say God is not good. If you paid attention to the news in this last week, the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party came out and said, you have to be atheist. And that triggered maybe the biggest persecution against the church that we've seen in decades. They are today burning down church buildings in China. This is illegal. These buildings are illegal. What you're doing is illegal, and we're going to stop it. That's happening today. If God does not get angry at that, I say he's not good. Apartheid. How it segregated away uh, a large part of God's kids and said, you're second-class citizens. If God does not get angry at that system, I say he's not good. Children and women who are abused and raped, if God does not get angry at the system that propagates those things, then I say he's not good. Rwanda, Kosovo, with the ethnic cleansings that took place there, and millions died. If God does not get angry at those things, he's not good. 9-11 and terrorism and molesting and just go on and on. If God does not get angry at how his kids are being hurt, then I agree with the angels. They're getting what they deserved. That is right. What you see in both Deuteronomy and in Revelation is this. It's a police action by God. God has been merciful and patient and waiting, but there is a point that God says, enough. Justice now. You had my mercy. You had my long suffering, but it's undone now. And now is the time for action. Every once in a while in our history, we see things like that where where we as a culture just say enough. In World War II, when we started to hear about the death camps, there was a united opinion that said, those must stop. That evil, it's so evil, we have to put a stop to it. This is what God is doing in Revelation. It's in the future. It's somewhere out there where God says enough is enough. No more. I'm going to dismantle the system, the cultures that have been hurting my kids for so long. I'm dismantling it, okay? So that's why the angels say, 
God, you're good. And you know what? I can agree with that. Okay, God, you're good. Dismantle that system. Be done with it. That's reaction number one. But there's another reaction. Look at this one. It's Revelation 16, verse 9. It's the reaction of the earth dwellers. Listen to what they say. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give Him glory. Verse 11, the people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pains and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. What were their deeds? Revelation lays it out. 2 through 15, they were killing God's kids, and they did not repent. Then verse 21, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds, that is massive, go right through you. Each one fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Reaction number two, earth dwellers. Their reaction is, God, you are bad. You are evil. You allowing this to happen is bad. I don't like the way you're running the universe. You have failed me, God, you are bad. We react the same way. Sometimes when things happen in our life and we don't quite like them, we can react just like this. God, what are you doing? God, why'd you allow my son to die? Why'd you allow that disease to come to me? Why'd you allow that person to get hurt? We can react just like these guys. And here's the reason why. It's verse nine. They cursed the name of God who had power. We say, come on, God, you've got the power. Why'd you allow this to happen? If you would have slowed down my car one mile per hour, I would have never gotten that accident. If you don't stop my son for 30 seconds, he'd be alive. If you'd have touched my mom, she'd been cured. God, why didn't you? We get mad at God. Why didn't you? If you'd have just closed down that account, my husband would still be with me. If you'd just done this, God, and we could get just like these people, we'd get mad and shake our fist at God. Because Satan, here's what he wants. Satan wants us to believe God doesn't care for us. To the believer, Satan rarely attacks God's power or God's existence. He mostly attacks God's compassion. If God cared for you, this wouldn't be happening to you. If God really cared for you, these events would have never taken place. God doesn't care for you. He has the power. He didn't use it. So curse God. Does that sound familiar to you? It should, because it's always been the way of Satan. In the book of Job, that most scholars believe is the oldest book in the Bible. Genesis was written somewhere around 1500 B.C. It looks like Job was actually written about 2000 B.C., 500 years older. In that book, you have this story, and it's a very, very hard story. It's God in heaven, and for some reason, he's having a conversation with Satan. I don't know why, but he says to Satan, hey, where you been? Satan says, I've been rolling around earth. And God says, have you seen my servant Job? Dude's a stallion. He's number one. He's the best I've got. 
Now, if Job would have known God was having that conversation, he would have been, please don't use my name. I'll sin right now if, you, if, you'll, if you'll take me off, right? What do I need to do? How do I not become the most righteous man? I'll lie, I'll steal, I'll kill somebody. Just let me know, right? He doesn't know. God holds him up and Satan says this, the only reason why Job serves you, the only reason is because you are his sugar daddy. If his life was difficult, if he had affliction, he would curse you. And so what happens is Satan begins to afflict Job, right? And in the space of just a few minutes, one morning Job is just drinking his cup of tea or coffee or whatever it is, and he's kicking back, and in runs a servant, and the servant says to him, Job, man, I was out in the field, and the Sabians came, and they attacked us. They killed all your servants. I alone escaped, and they stole all your oxen and all your donkeys. Whoa. That's going to be a financial hit. Before he can be done, another servant runs in and says, Job, Job, I was out in the field with the shepherds. Fire came from heaven, killed all of your servants, all of your sheep. I alone have escaped to give you this news. Whoa, that's really bad. Before he can finish, another servant comes in. Hey, I was with your camels, and the Chaldeans swooped out. They stole all of your camels, killed all of your servants, and I alone have escaped to bring you this news. Oh, that's all my wealth. But it doesn't end there. A final servant comes in. I was with your seven sons and your three daughters, and I was out and I was doing the dishes outside, and all of a sudden a big wind came up and blew over the house and killed all your servants and your 10 kids, and I alone have escaped to bring you this news. And all that's left for Job is his wife. And what does his wife say to him? Curse God and die. To which Job falls on his knees and prays, Lord, take her too. (laughs) No, he doesn't. (laughs) Can I trade her for a camel? I'd really like a camel right now. If I could just get a camel back, I need to get around. (laughs) It's always been that way. When difficulty comes, curse God, right? That's the natural reaction of an earth dweller. If you want to read a good book, it's depressing, but sometimes you need to read reality. It's still a bestseller, and it was written 50 years ago. It's Ellie Wiesel's book, Night. Actually, it was written more than that, 60 years ago. And it was written about his experience in the Holocaust, in the death camps, And unbelievable. Here's what happens. Maybe the most pivotal story in that book is this. He goes out on a work camp, goes out. The project they want to do falls apart, so they all come back to the camp early. Well, the guards inside the camp were putting three people to death. And they don't like to do that in front of the the prisoners because it's bad will. So they don't normally want to do that. But in this instance, they didn't know the people were coming back, and they already had the whole thing set up. So as the prisoners filed in, they started filing, and they lined up right in front of these gallows, lined up. And the three men were marched out there, two adults and one 12-year-old boy, a 12-year-old boy who had been protecting the identity of a Dutchman who was smuggling arms, who under interrogation had never given in, would not give up the name of this guy, chose death instead, just a hero of a young boy. So they're lined up, they're brought up, they're put on their chairs, the Ropes are put on their necks, 
And as they're standing there, just before the chairs are tipped backwards, a guy in front of Ellie Wazell, as they lined up, yells out, where is God? And the chairs tip back. And they finish their counting off. And they do all that. And then they they begin to file out. And the way that they filed out, they filed out right in front of those gallons. Half an hour later, Ellie and this man who had yelled, where's God, walked past the gallows. The first two men, because they were heavy, their necks instantly snapped. But the 12-year-old boy was still alive, gurgling and struggling, suspended, as Ellie puts, between life and death, between heaven and hell. And you hear that guy in front of him again yell out, where is God? To which Ellie says, in my heart, a voice spoke. God is on those gallows. He's dead to me. Curse him. That's the natural response of an earth dweller. God, how could you allow evil to happen? How could you allow a 12-year-old boy to suffer that way? How could you allow my mom to go? How could you allow that? Curse God. But there's a third reaction. It's one that most people miss, but it's not supposed to be missed. In fact, there's a marker in it that's supposed to call our attention to it. It's verse 7. Let me read it for you. And I heard the altar saying, what's an altar? It's essentially furniture, right? Does furniture talk? If you came in here today and you went to sit down in your chair and your chair was like, whoa, 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 hey, hey, time out. <laughs> hey, listen, man, my legs have been hurting and you had a whopper last night and I just ain't, I ain't ready for it. Can you choose the guy next to me? You'd be like, what in the world, right? That would grab your attention. Like, wow, what? Something's cr- something crazy is going on. Right? You go into your car and it won't start. And you're like, what's wrong with my car? And it says, you know what? I'm not starting for you anymore. What? Why not? Because, man, you've been looking at those BMWs everywhere we go. I'm not, you know, unfaithful to me. It would grab your attention. This is supposed to do that. The altar's talking. Altars don't talk. What does it say? Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. There's a final word. The altar says this. God, you're powerful. It's so fascinating to me. Because today we have this conundrum, if you would, enigma about God. If God is all good and all powerful, why is there evil? Guess what the three answers are? God, you're good, God, you're powerful, and God, you're evil, right? It's exactly here 2,000 years ago, and the altar is giving us the answer. God, you're powerful. God, you're powerful. But it's the marrying of the Almighty to the altar. See, if God is so good and so powerful, why doesn't he do something about evil? I may just switch here. Can I grab that? Thank you. Sorry, Justin. Yeah, it's tied in there. Okay.
of death and sacrifice. When we sit there and point our finger at God, God, how could you allow this? God, why would you allow this? You have to remember God allowed it into himself. All of it. That he's so upset and angry at evil that he allowed himself to go through it. Revelation 16 is not the end of the book. Revelation 21 and 22 are. That God is saying, I'm doing something. I'm moving us somewhere. And it's a really good end. Only Christianity, there is no other religion. Only Christianity has God being vulnerable. No other religion does that. Gods are always way up here doing this. Only Christianity, God comes down, becomes Emmanuel, dies, is slaughtered, is abandoned by all of his comrades, denied by his best friend, brutally beaten, imprisoned unfairly, slaughtered on a cross. Only, only Christianity marries the Almighty to the altar. No other religion does. And you know how much that matters? I'll read it from somebody who's not a believer. Just because I like to read people that are perplexed by the cross who don't believe in it. So this guy's name is Albert Camus. Anyone take Philosophy 101? Okay, Albert Camus, he came up with what's called absurdism. What's absurdism? Is the opposite philosophy of don't worry, be happy. All right? So it's very negative, very dark, very like, oh man, forget it. So that's this guy, but he has this, this enigma with the cross. Listen to what he says, and I'll quote it. Quote, on the cross, the God-man suffers too with patience. Evil and death can no longer be entirely imputed to him since he suffers and dies. We can't point our finger at God and say, why are you allowing this evil? Because God would say, what are you talking about? It happened to me. What do you mean? That's what Albert Camus is saying. The night on Golgotha is so important in the history of man only because in its shadows, the divinity ostensibly abandoned its traditional privilege and lived through to the end, despair included, the agony of death, end quote. The altar and the Almighty are only married in Christianity. When we say, God, how could you let this? God's saying, I allowed it to happen to me. It's something different. You got to understand that. Have you ever really taken time and stared at the cross? What it really means? What really happened? The garden is called the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane means wine press. It was in that garden that the very soul of God Almighty was crushed. That's what happened there. It's on the cross that Jesus says, Dad, why'd you leave me? Brutal. And here's the worst part. The worst part about the cross is this. It wasn't six hours on a Friday afternoon. Revelation says he was slain before the foundation of the world, that something eternal and cosmic happened. And Jesus knew the whole time it's coming. That's what the garden was. When he sweats great drops of blood, when he pleads with God, despairs of life itself, please don't let this happen to me. Why? Because he knew how bad it was. Isn't the worst part about pain? It's not the actual event of pain. It's the worrying about being in pain, right? Remember going to the dentist as a kid? You had a cavity. What would the dentist do when he had to give you Novocaine? Would he pull out the needle and be like, look at this kid. Woohoo! 
squirt a little bit. Aha. Here's what I'm going to do with this three-inch needle. I'm going to jab it into your cheek. I'm going to squirt acid into your cheek. I'm going to pull it out. I'm going to jab it again. I'm going to squirt acid in it. I'm going to do that just like a sewing machine about 400 times. No, what did the dentist do? You're like, what do you have, doc? Oh, nothing. Do you have a dog? Yeah, I do. What's your dog's name? Rex. All right. Right? Because the anticipation is worse than it. Jesus knew fully. This is what's coming. That's why in Matthew 26, it says he despaired of life. He knew the crushing that was going to happen. He understood it. See, the cross, yes, proves God's love, but it proves something else. It proves this, that God hates evil and injustice more than you and me. He hates it more than I do. We get angry, but I think at the wrong thing. We should get angry. The Bible says, be angry, but sin not. Guess what we're supposed to be angry at? Not God. We're supposed to be angry at evil. That's how angry God is. God pours out his what? Anger at what? Evil. Jesus says, join with me. I hate this as much as you do. I hate it so much. I allowed myself to come under it and be brutally beaten by it. That's how much I hate it as well. I found this in in Christians. Hard things will do one of two things to you. They'll either drive you to the altar of Calvary where you join with Jesus in pressing back against evil, or it drives you to the altar of cursing where you become just like these earth dwellers and you get mad at, angry at God. I've been angry at God. I quit my job as an engineer. said, I'm gonna dedicate my life to you, God. I wanna work for your kingdom. Not about all this other stuff. I wanna be in. Edgewater starts. Three months into Edgewater, my mom, totally healthy, totally just ate right, did everything right, gets cancer and dies. Just suddenly. Five months after that, my older brother dies in an automobile accident. And I just sat there. I said, God, why? I gave to you. I've dedicated my life to you. And this is how you repay me? Is this what I get back? I got angry. I got angry. You know what called me back? It's the altar. It's the altar. It was Jesus saying to me, Matt, I'm angry at it too. Matt, I hate cancer too. Matt, I hate alcoholism too. Matt, I hate drugs too. Matt, I hate it. That's why I brought it all onto myself. Don't you see that? Don't you know that, Matt? I hate it. And I'm working to eradicate the earth of it. That's what Deuteronomy 20 and Revelation 16 have in this. They're, they're exactly the same. It's God saying this in both instances. Matt, I want to create a safe spot for my kids to dwell in peace and safety. I want to drive out the sex traffickers and the drug dealers and the rapists and the child molesters to create a safe spot, Matt, where my kids can dwell in safety and freedom. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm pushing that stuff out. Join with me in that. That's what Revelation 16 is all about. It's the end of the story when God finally says, you know what? I have been patient with evil long enough. I'm done. My long suffering is over. My wrath is being poured out. God does one of two things with evil. He either redeems it, which he's done in my life, 
and many of ours. Or he removes it. Well, why doesn't he remove it right now? Because a whole bunch of people would die that God says, I want them saved. Peter says this, 2 Peter 3, 9. God is not willing that any should perish. It's about his long suffering. I am waiting and waiting because I want to redeem as many people as possible that will come into this new clean kingdom where they can dwell free from pain and suffering and cancer and alcoholism and evil. But I'm going to wait because I want to redeem as many people as possible. I want to redeem the Rahabs. I want to redeem the Matt Heverleys. So I'll wait and I'll wait. And right now, here's what Jesus says to you and me. Join with me. Let's push back evil right now. I started something 2,000 years ago. The kingdom has come. Join with me. Let's partner and push back the evil every single day in Grants Pass. That's why we're so on with safe families. We think that's the way we do it. Like we can start to positively affect some real evil in Grants Pass through this mechanism. Join with me. Get angry at it. Yes, because I'm angry at it too. But don't be angry at me. Man, I hate this stuff just as much, even more than you do. And one day, Revelation 16 comes. And one day, all that is evil and corrupt, the Bible says this, Jesus scoops it up and he throws it into this place called the lake of fire where it's away from his people for eternity so that we can dwell in a clean spot where parents don't have to teach their kids about good touch and bad touch where women can walk free at night, not worrying about being raped, where there's freedom and righteousness. That's the place God's moving us toward. That's the story of Revelation. When I hear that, I say, God, you are good and you are powerful and your plan is right. I wanna join with that. That's what I say. And I know this from being in church long enough. There are people sitting here right now that have listened to the enemy. And in their hearts, just like I did, they're angry at God, shaking their fist at him. Here's what I found when I did that. It made me miserable. That bitterness just started to corrupt me. I started seeing life so differently. Life was broken. God was broken. Everything's bad. It polluted me. That's what Hebrews 12 says. When you have bitterness in your heart, it defiles the whole member. Everything is seen through that lens. What helped me was this. It was some people that started to talk to me and pray for me and remind me of the altar that says, God, you're mighty, true and just are your judgments. That's what helped me. And so maybe today you need that help. Get prayer today. Get prayer. I'd love to pray for you. Other people would love to pray for you. We'd love to pray for you. Grab the person next to you. They'll pray for you. And then communion. Here's what's brilliant about communion to me. Communion, I'm thinking more and more in my thinking. I have this saying and I stole it from somebody. In communion, the veil between heaven and earth grows thin. That something can happen in this moment where you really experience the healing work of Jesus Christ. That Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 53, speaking of the cross, says this, by his stripes we are healed, that healing can come. That the curse, the anger, the evil that was done to you, you can be healed from it, and healers can go out and heal other people. That all of a sudden you join with him. I'm not angry at him anymore. I'm angry with him, and I'm going to be used in this great mission 
of pushing back darkness and partnering with him right now, seeing a clean space in myself and also in my neighborhood and with my friends and with other people where righteousness rules. That's what we get to do. So as you take communion, if you feel that way, and I've been there, say, God, cleanse my heart. That's what you died to do. You died for me to be able to celebrate a new kingdom. And I'm being ripped off right now. Forgive me for cursing. I don't want to be that way. Help me to get angry at evil and join with you. And see cleanliness created in me and me be an outpost, a missionary, a light, a salt person in my community. That's what he can do for you. And that's what he wants to do. So Father, forgive me where I've been an earth dweller, where I've shaken my fist and said, why? Help me to be a man that doesn't get angry at sin or doesn't get angry at you, but gets angry at sin and evil and hurt and is motivated to do something about it. You have made me so rich with scripture, friendships, upbringing, your spirit, your forgiveness, the gospel, salvation, atonement, redemption, inheritance, an eternal dwelling. Lord, you've made me so rich. Help me to use those riches and spend that capital on the kingdom that's all around me, Lord. A kingdom that is corrupt and broken. But let me bring in a new kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, the altar of forgiveness, the altar of cleansing. Help each one of us to do that, Lord. I pray as we partake, I pray that you would do the incredible work of changing hearts and healing souls and moving lives forward, Lord God. May we be like the angels. God, you're good. And may we be like the altar. God, you're powerful. And may we preach to the earth dwellers, get angry at evil, curse evil. That's what's hurting you. And I pray that we would see the city of Grant's pass because of your people, proclaiming truth, living truth. May we see the city of Grant's Pass become a city on a hill. May it be a place where evil and wickedness and fear and grossness, they're scooped up and removed from this place. May it be a safe spot where kids can grow, love Jesus, get married, have godly kids. Lord, that's what we pray. So start that work in each one of us, I pray. Forgive us for our anger. Forgive us for those things we ask. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.